Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore, joined by my co-host, Kyle Helson, and today we are going over high-intensity interval training. But before we get started with that, I just want to thank everybody as always. Thank you for the donations, and um, if you want to follow us on Instagram, the Instagram is Empirical Cycling. And uh, for all questions uh, about the show, if you have any questions, uh, you know, the last uh, episode was a... um, was a listener question. Uh, what's so special about two by 20 minutes? If, uh, and if you have any questions about that, or if you have any coaching inquiries, please send an email to empiricalcycling at gmail.com. High intensity interval training. This, uh, this seems to be all the rage these days, doesn't it, Kyle? Yeah, I think so. I think it's really entered the sort of Instagram culture of fitness where, especially with the emergence of something like CrossFit and everyone's, uh, you know, clickbaity articles about the best way to get your, you know, summer beach body or whatever. Um, this whole idea of doing working really hard and not having to work as long or think about slogging endless miles on the Stairmaster or something. Uh, high intensity interval training, I think, is super popular these days. Uh, you see a lot of also like kind of pseudo group fitness classes based off of what is essentially high intensity interval training. And I think even if you think back to the, the late 2000 and mid to late two thousands, like the emergence of the, uh, home fitness P 90 X type videos. Oh, too. Yeah. Also, I remember P 90 X pretty well. It's all, it's all based on this idea of doing what is essentially high intensity interval training. And they, you know, they put their proprietary name over it, but it's, yeah, it's doing, it's going pretty hard for, you know, 20 seconds or whatever, and then going easy and hard and, and, uh, and it potentially led to the birth of CrossFit. And, um, and I don't think this is going to be a surprise to anybody, um, given, uh, how we've talked about CrossFit, uh, before I, I'm glad with what it's doing for weightlifting, but, um, I'm not glad for what it's doing for, um, people overdoing high intensity interval training. So with high intensity interval training, uh, what I really want to get into today is uh, we're going to look at some of the uh, one of the original high intensity interval training papers. We're going to look at the original Tabata protocol and the original um, the original scientific paper, which I um, which I really dug into in prep for this show. And um, I, we're also going to dig into another paper, but not quite as deep because it's a little more technical. And by a little, I mean very much so. If you want to read either of them. I am actually going to put the link up to the second paper on um, on the website, and I will probably put the PDF for the uh, the first paper, the Tabata, on the website. The second one is uh, open um, open access, so you can just click on the link and read it. And that's at empiricalcycling.com. Um, head over for the uh, for the show notes. So, Kyle, uh, high intensity interval training. So you have, like I have, been reading a lot of the. Uh, blog posts and uh, books and whatnot. And, you know, doesn't it kind of seem to you like high intensity interval training, uh, you know, regardless of the actual intervals done is kind of like a training cure all? Yeah, I think it's often billed as a great way to improve both like VO2 max, like aerobic capacity, like maximal aerobic capacity, as well as building this anaerobic capacity. And it's also famous for its very short total work intervals. So you don't even have to like two by 20 by comparison is a a long workout uh, compared to a lot of the 
high intensity interval protocols. And so it's kind of billed as this silver bullet of, Oh, get, you know, get all this work done in a short amount of time. That's going to make you really fit and help a lot on race day or something like that. Yeah. And the studies, um, they, they do bear out, um, some of that. However, uh, we're going to go into um, what the uh, what the studies actually say, what the intervals actually do to your body, and um, and how you can actually program your own high intensity interval training. So um, so there's a couple types of high intensity interval training that we're going to get into, and some people call it hit training, and I think that's um, I, I don't know why I can't call it hit training yet. Yeah, I kind of don't like it either. <laughs> um, I've never. Re- I think it's one of those things that I will say as like a joke, but it, you know, sort of like ironically, but I would never actually go, you know, purposely call it hit training. Um, okay. So the first type of interval training is, um, like the intensity level. So it's high intensity. So what do we mean? High intensity generally, um, well, we're going to get to what the original protocols are in a minute, but, um, high intensity generally means a maximal effort. Now, for um, for most endurance athletes, uh, doing a bunch of maximal efforts, like truly 100% all out and stringing them together for, um, you know, a couple minutes to a lot of minutes um, is actually not horribly difficult. I mean, obviously, it's very, very hard, but it's repeatable. Um, the uh, To make it more repeatable, we can actually... Uh, lower the intensity. So, uh, so to me, it's not technically high intensity uh, because it's not the intensity is not that high. But, uh, but for instance, if you want to do, um, you know, like 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off for like 10 minutes, you are by necessity going to have to reduce those 15 second work intervals to a lower power than uh, than a maximal effort. And even if you do a maximal effort there, they are by their own nature of the fatigue that you're experiencing going to come down in power from the first one. So I think it's pretty obvious if you do like three minutes, 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off, the power is going to be a lot higher than if you do 20 minutes of 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off. And this is, uh, and we're going to get into the, uh, you know, how we design these a little later and the metabolic implications. Um, so the third uh, way to do high intensity interval training is um, is to do a short maximal effort and actually give yourself some complete rest. So a, a very common protocol is 30 seconds all out followed by four minutes rest. And this is, uh, this is pretty common. And um, one of the reasons that I actually chose the second paper is that um, is that they use this protocol? Um, so, Kyle, uh, did I miss anything so far? Um, no, that's it. I think I think in a lot of the maybe the less cycling focus and more general fitness or like lifting focus communities, typically high intensity intervals are always billed as being some period of all out followed by some period of entirely rest. So. Obviously, if you're going to be doing jumping jacks, that's a okay. So obviously, if you're going to be doing burpees for 20 seconds as your work interval, there's no way to measure intensity level with burpees. It's just you're going to do them as hard as you can. Yeah, and actually, this brings up a really good point that um, that cycling has um, 
and you know, pat on the back to all of us cyclists, we've actually had a great advantage for a very long time with the invention of the power meter because we've actually been able to see the entire physiologic spectrum of an athlete where in a lot of other sports, they're only just now starting to get power meters. Like there's power meters for running, there are for rowing. Um, but, you know, we have a separate a separate implement through which we put out power and we can measure it. And that's actually given us, in terms of the exercise physiology, um, like a real, a real, a head above the other sports is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Um, but for now, um, let's start digging into the Tabata Protocol. So the, the original Tabata paper, the design was 20 seconds at 170% of VO2 max and 10 second rest. And they would uh, try to get their people doing this eight times um, for a four minute interval. So eight, four minute intervals of 20 seconds on 10 seconds rest. And, um, this is just as a, as an aside, if you want to try this protocol yourself, the, uh, the way that I would do it is if you have WKO four, I would open up your VO two max report and check out your VO two max power. And now you can simply calculate what your uh, work interval would be. So if your VO two max power is 300 Watts, you can do these at 510 Watts. And uh, the rest period would be, um, I assume, four to ten minutes. They didn't actually specify the rest period. One of the things about this study was that it was done in 1996. Um, so we actually have to give some context for 1996. Um, the typical training in a lot of sports in 1996 was pace-based. So in other words, if you're training for like a 4K pursuit, what they would do is they would uh, take your target time and they would divide it up. So if you're targeting like a, like a five minute pursuit, you know, over 4k, they're going to divide up five minutes into maybe four sections or five sections. And then you're going to divide up 4k into those sections. And now you do, you know, you do 1k at your five minute pace, and then you're going to do another 1k at your five minute pace or however it gets divided up. So, um, so physiologically, this actually has implications because you're actually not going hard enough to improve. Now, doing these maximal efforts is kind of a big deal to people who maybe haven't worked this hard before. So, like Kyle, you uh, you were a swimmer mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, does this does this kind of uh, you were a swimmer in the '90s too, right? Yeah, '90s through uh, late 2000s. Yeah. So, does this kind of sound like um, you know the kind of training that you were doing? It does it actually reminds me so in high school i remember when it would come to be taper time we would end up doing a lot of these sort of broken target race pace intervals for our races so say you were doing the 200 free yeah the, the coach would break it up and you would do four fifties at your goal pace with someone standing there with a, a stopwatch and giving you you know at least one-to-one -one work rest um and i my coach at the time was, he was in his 50s, I want to say, um, in the mid-2000s. So he was definitely old school in his training. And, you know, he started swimming and, and grew up before they invented goggles. So you can imagine <laughs> how or how modern his training could have been. Yeah, it's okay. So that, um, yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And the runners I knew... Um, 
in high school were doing the same thing. And a bunch of the rowers I knew too were also doing the same thing. Okay, so the Tabata paper is very, very good, but it's not perfect because of a couple of the methodologies and assumptions that exercise science has, you know, we've learned a little more since then, but, uh, but I'm going to go through the things that still hold up. So what Dr. Tabata did was he used moderately trained subjects. So people who, you know, play like Frisbee on the weekends or go hiking or sometimes go for a run, like people who aren't highly trained. Um, so their VO2 max, their average, uh, average group, they had two groups. One started at uh, an average VO2 max of 48 and the other group started at 53. So what he was focusing on in this study was anaerobic capacity. So he was, um, so he was measuring anaerobic capacity by accumulated oxygen deficit. So if you, so for instance, if you do a 30 second, um, a 30 second effort at let's call it, um, 500 Watts and your VO two max is 250 Watts. You have now, now you've gone over what you can aerobically do in that time period. So that creates what's called oxygen deficit and debt. Um, and by measuring oxygen uptake afterwards, like, you know, when you're done with that, that effort and you're breathing really hard, um, you know, Kyle, track sprinter, do you know a little bit of breathing really hard after these efforts? Oh, certainly. And, and you get to the point where you actually feel like five minutes maybe after a four minute set of intervals you're still breathing hard and you're sitting there like <sighs> <sighs> you know yeah okay so this is not a perfect measure of anaerobic capacity um and uh and i, I don't have to get into the biochemistry of this but um but okay so here's here's the here's the really cool thing about this um he split up his test groups the first test group was basically doing ftp training so he got the VO2 max of each group, and he had the first group doing um, like basically uh, like sweet spot or FTP work. Um, he was they were doing um, sixty minutes at seventy percent of VO2 max. So it's pretty much like FTP sweet spot work. The second group was doing the um, was doing the twenty seconds on, ten seconds off protocol. And they did this for I think six weeks, and um, and it was he, a couple times a week, right? Each of them did it. Yeah. So yeah. So they exercised five days a week for six weeks doing this protocol, and uh, and what they found was that uh, yes, indeed, um, the uh, the 2010 group really increased their anaerobic capacity. But what's really cool is that both groups increased their VO2 max by a similar amount. So untrained people, FTP sweet spot work increases VO2 max. Kyle, you've seen all of the stuff about high-intensity interval training increasing VO2 max, right? Right, yeah. That's often billed as one of its benefits. It's that it's going to increase this largely aerobic uh, physiological trait while doing these much shorter... Efforts where normally you think of, oh, if I have to Im improve my VO2 max, I'm going to be doing longer efforts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or even, um, well, I actually, so, okay. So I think that, I think the interesting point here is, um, is something that, uh, that a lot of coaches know to be true is that, um, you know, pretty much when you're getting up off the couch from being 
inactive to very active, literally anything will make somebody faster. Um, and if you have a particularly very high responder, like, uh, like, a like some world-class people that we know now, um, then literally anything you do, no matter what is going to make them faster. Like I, I heard a, a good, um, a good story from one of Brad Wiggins's first coaches. Uh, did you hear this one, Kyle? I don't remember where I heard it. Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. So, so Brad, Brad Wiggins's first coach, um, you know, Wiggins was responding so well to all of the training he gave him. The coach is going, Oh my God, I'm the best coach in the world. Look at this guy. He's improving so rapidly. And then, you know, the, then the punchline is like, you know, many years later, he was like, Oh my God, I had Brad Wiggins. No wonder the guy's going to become a monster no matter what anybody does. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that a lot of things improve your aerobic ability. So so one of the things that becomes necessary, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves in terms of episodes here, we'll do something in depth on this later, but what happens is as you become more and more well-trained is that um, like just anything improving you no longer improves you later because now you've grown accustomed to that stimulus. So, um, so what happens is like when you start training and anything improves you, now there's a long string of things from breathing to your working muscles, to, uh, to expiring CO2. There's, there's a lot of stuff happening there that, uh, that is getting some stress and everything improves. But at a certain point during that training, everything has improved to the level that it can improve by the stress that you're giving the entire signal chain. Now, in order to improve further, now you have to start picking out little bits. Like you have to start like if you want to improve anaerobic capacity beyond a certain point, may, um, I, I would actually say that uh, 2010s are not right for you. And we'll get into it. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but that's just a teaser for later. Yeah, I think I think put another way, if, for example, uh, something that people often, I think, imagine early on when they start training is that, oh, say if I want to get better at at my one minute power, I'm just going to go out every day and slam one minute intervals over and over and over and over again. And it turns out that's not anywhere near the most effective way to do it, even though you would think like, oh, I'm doing the most specific training possible. <laughs> um, and it's because of exactly what you said. Like there are many physiological components and physio physiological systems that have to work really well for you to have a good one minute power. And if you just go out and sort of, this is it's like the, the shotgun training approach where you're just going to try and just completely slam it and hope that that you hope you get improvements wherever you need them. And it actually is more effective if you go back and are thoughtful, like, okay, what are the components that go into me riding really hard for one minute? And I'm going to go through and see which one of those I am deficient in and then work on those to bring them all up. It would be, well, the other example would be, say if you're really bad at road races, if you only ever did hard group rides and we're trying to figure out, well, why why aren't I winning road races? All of my rides every day are really hard group rides. That should make me really good, right? That's very specific. Well, okay. Obviously, that's not going to work. People have tried this and they know that, oh, I have to go back and I have to look at the individual uh, components of winning a road race and work on those and find the weaknesses, yeah, and if we want to look at the individual components 
that were weak in the participants of the Tabata study um, in either test group, it would be everything because they're untrained in everything. And the FTP group didn't actually increase their anaerobic capacity, which is the stimulus that he was looking for. And the, um, and the 2010 group did significantly increase the anaerobic capacity because not only was their aerobic system getting stimulated by the recovery between all the hard efforts, it was actually stimulating the anaerobic system because... Um, because you know, every 30 seconds they were doing a 20 second maximal interval. And that this is stressing out that system that burns carbs where the, um, where the 70% VO2 max test group was not doing this. Actually, one of the things that I think about the Tabata protocol that a lot of people forget about is that uh, it actually can increase your anaerobic capacity, especially if you don't have a lot of anaerobic capacity um, uh, uh, stimulus in your training. Um, so if you're going out and you're doing a lot of, you know, like endurance pace rides or just easy rides or or whatever it is that's not doesn't that doesn't have all of these truly maximal efforts then you're going to have a big uh, a big response or you can have a big response um, when you start doing uh, these intervals. I think most people would have this response. I think a lot of times that's what high-intensity intervals are billed as for the more recreational weekend warrior type athlete. They're good. they're good because they're short, and if you're time crunched, you don't need that much time. And also you improve both your aerobic and anaerobic capacity to a certain extent. So you kinda, it's kind of billed as a twofer. Okay, but uh, so here's one of the things that I want to point out with this type of training. Uh, and we kind of... S- uh, we kind of touched on this a little bit in the, in the last episode on two by 20 um, and uh, you know, structuring FTP workouts um, is that it takes a little bit for your muscles metabolically to catch up with um, you know, with the actual workload. And so um, so what's really cool about the human body is that, um, it actually responds faster to higher workloads. So, um, so the time from zero to maximal oxygen uptake, uh, we typically can you can typically estimate at like, I don't know, a minute, two minutes, something like that. Uh, maybe it depends on the person too. Um, and um, and so what's what's actually driving, or part of what's driving aerobic adaptation during this type of training, it's not the actual intervals themselves. The intervals themselves are so completely anaerobic, especially for like short four minutes that, um, and because you're resting in between, you can do a lot more work. Um, like the paper said, 170% of VO2 max. Um, and if you're doing 20 seconds on, um, you know, you can be damn sure that, uh, at least the first, you know, 10 seconds or so, there's a huge anaerobic uh, contribution, and especially in the first handful per rep, I mean, per like four minutes set. Um, so, so this is actually one of the mechanisms that drives the anaerobic capacity. Like if you did this as four minutes steady and you started out with the same effort and then you, then you obviously faded down to what you could aerobically maintain. Yeah. You're only going to get that first like ten or twenty seconds of anaerobic stimulus. 
and then mm-hmm. you then you fatigue and you and you burn off all of that anaerobic, anaerobic capacity, and now your heart and lungs are working as hard as they can. But with this intermittent type work, what happens is you're actually working over your aerobic capacity. So what drives your uh, your aerobic system is recovering from these anaerobic efforts. And that's why uh, Tabata was measuring accumulated oxygen deficit, like how much oxygen do you need after your intervals and, and during your intervals do you need to recover from this type of training? Yeah, that makes sense too if for people, especially people who've tried these before or any type of high-intensity interval, kind of like when we were talking about in the uh, Criterium episode, your breathing is really ragged even during the rest period when you're literally not putting out any effort. You're just sitting there or barely ticking the pedals over or something if you're on a trainer and you're still going to be sucking wind. And then even after you're done, for a few minutes afterward, your, your breathing rate is still really elevated over normal. Okay, so I think that's a good spot to wrap up Tabata for a bit, and we're actually going to move on to the second paper. It's called Reanodyne Receptor Fragmentation and Sarcoplasmic Reticulum Calcium Leak After One Session of High-Intensity Interval Exercise. So what that really means is not too important, but uh, the cool part about this paper is that they're actually looking at the cellular consequences of high-intensity interval training, and they not only looked at... um, the uh, uh, a less trained group, they also looked at highly uh, endurance trained athletes as well. All right, so what they did was they looked at the the one-off, very intense intervals, and they they were actually trying to investigate what's the uh, the cellular mechanism behind this. And when we get to it, I'm just going to gloss over it for you guys. Uh, but if you if you want to look at the paper, uh, I've linked to it in the show notes at empiricalcycling.com. Um, under the podcast episodes. So what they did was they had, uh, they had a group, they did one set of uh, three by 30 second all out sprints with four minute rests. That was the whole protocol. They took untrained people uh, to begin with and had them do three 30 second maximal sprints on a, on a cycling ergometer um, with four minute rests and what they actually found was that the ryanodyne receptor fragments. And what happens is this leads to a calcium leak into the cell during um, rest periods and for possibly a, a couple hours and a couple days afterwards. Uh, I don't think they checked the recovery time. And they did this with trained subjects. They did six 30-second all-out intervals with four-minute rests, and they found no- that sounds like a horrible test. <laughs> yeah, and it probably was, but they're well, they were well trained, um, and so uh, like I think their average VO two max was like sixty-seven or sixty-eight. Nice. Yeah, so pretty well trained, um, and they had no receptor fragmentation. So when this fragments, the sarcoplasmic reticulum actually leaks calcium into the cell, and um, so. So just the the quick and dirty thing uh, for this is when uh, calcium is in a cell, it means the muscle is contracting, and that stimulates the muscle to um, to adapt to an exercise stress. And the adaptation that's happening here is making more mitochondria. So on the surface, this kind of looks 
like a paradox in that this is a very anaerobic um, uh, protocol that we're looking at here, like 30 seconds all out followed by four minutes rest, that's uh, that's pretty sufficient rest, and you're not going to be staying at your high oxygen uh, debt and deficit, you know, like you are doing a Tabata protocol for four minutes. You actually get four minutes of rest between your next 30 seconds of work. Uh, you know, 20 seconds on for Tabata, 30 seconds for this. Um, you know, you might not expect the aerobic stress to be that high, but it turns out that it is in the untrained people because they haven't faced this level of um, of aerobic demand before. And this is one of the interesting things about the untrained versus the trained is that the trained, not only in terms of the oxygen uptake, um, but in terms of, uh, in the case of what they're looking at in this study, handling the calcium that's in your cell when the muscle's contracting. So, you know, this being a stimulus to grow mitochondria, you know, in endurance trained people, you know, some people with, you know, high 60s VO2 max, pretty well trained, their muscles are so accustomed to the stimulus of having calcium in their muscles all the time that it no longer provides a sufficient stimulus uh, with this protocol to grow mitochondria is kind of what this paper is saying. And I think this also points to the larger point that we've been making so far, which is that, you know, as you get better and better trained, you really need to find that weak link in your physiology and target that as opposed to doing things that are kind of a catch all. And, um, and, you know, whether that's going with the Tabata protocol of 2010s for four minutes versus this, um, or if you need an even more specific stimulus for, say, VO2 max, um, you know, doing more targeted intervals that no longer target your anaerobic system as well, and just going with the um, aerobic maximal. Um, so there are different intervals that can do that, and we're going to get into those in another episode. Uh, okay, so I was looking through the references for this study, and it led me to another study that had pretty much a protocol of 3 by 20 minutes FTP versus 7 by 30 second sprint at 180% VO2 max with 4 minute rests. And they have similar mechanisms of cellular level response, and, uh, and they looked at gene transcription, so just to gloss over this real quick. Um, they had similar levels of response in terms of upregulating PCG1-alpha, uh, cofactor PRC, and PPAR. So if you're into the scientific literature, those should sound pretty familiar as, uh, as genes that downstream will upregulate aerobic enzymes and whatnot. Okay, the link to that is also in the show notes. So head over to empiricalcycling.com to check that out. And um, okay, so... What is important about this study is that um, I personally think that this is the uh, this is the wrong comparison to make because because um, in elite athletes now now like we talked about you've got the whole signal chain from breathing down to your muscles that um, and different types of training affect a certain spot differently so. High-intensity interval training affects anaerobic capacity a lot. And this is something that we try to keep down in endurance athletes. And we're going to get into why uh, in another episode. 
So if we want to increase VO2 max, we do regular VO2 max intervals. We want to increase FTP, we do FTP intervals. And we find that VO2 max doesn't really increase FTP in elite athletes. We find that FTP work doesn't really increase VO2 max in elite athletes because now you've got to focus on one or you've got to focus on the other. And it's kind of hard unless they're coming right, coming right in from the off season. It's really hard to get kind of get both at the same time. Does, does that kind of make sense, Kyle? Yeah, I think that makes sense in in the sense that if you're an elite athlete, your body is already used to or is already capable of such a high level of either VO2 max work or FTP work that FTP work isn't going to stress that the stress your body enough to also earn you a little bit of VO2 max adaptations or vice versa like the VO2 max adaptations won't be or the VO2 max intervals you're doing won't be long enough in duration to kind of boost your FTP at the same time like it would be in beginner or intermediate athletes yeah and actually um uh, a friend of mine um who uh, who is uh, who's been a physiologist for a very long time um he's you know he told me uh, during a conversation once that you can in, in the super elite, like if you increase one, the other actually decreases. So it actually becomes like a teeter-totter of physiological systems. That makes sense. Actually, as a, as a kind of point um, of reference that people may know as well, like Phil Guyman, now that he's going out and doing these like Strava KOMs everywhere and not having to train for these very long world tour races where he would have to really have this very 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 large aerobic base he has actually said that his like ftp has gone up a little bit because presumably because he doesn't have to do all of these very very long uh days in the saddle he's looking at 15 20 30 minute climbs and so if he's going out and only having to, to ride for a few hours and not nine or something like that you'd expect to see um that go up yeah, but also that, that he's also he also must be doing a lot of anaerobic intervals to increase his uh, anaerobic ability, and also this is going to increase your twenty minute power. So, um, so I know his coach uh, is probably a fan of the twenty minute tests. I could be wrong, um, but you know if uh, but if you're doing a lot of anaerobic stuff, like this is the kind of polish on someone's fitness um, because the adaptations of anaerobic work are almost all enzymatic. In other words, like they're enzymes. They're not like long-term slow changing structural adaptations of your body and your muscles and whatnot. Um, you're just making a protein in your cell. And this takes like a couple hours. And by the time you've recovered your glycogen stores, which is a couple days, you're going to see immediate improvements. And uh, in my coaching experience, this is exactly what happens. Uh, and it's also borne out by the science. But um, I think that just about covers it for today, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think people people hopefully have a better understanding of what exactly is both the origin of high intensity interval training. So maybe this kind of seminal Tabata study. And now hopefully people have also understood a little bit more of the finer details to picking up a workout protocol and also figuring out how they can sub them in maybe for some of their more traditional VO2 max or FTP work. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things um, like we cautioned in the, uh, in the criterium, episode the uh, episode two um is that 
doing too much of this style of work, um, be, you know, because we've just been talking about how the recovery periods allow you to work anaerobically at the beginning of each interval more. So now you're really digging into your carb stores and, uh, and these things when done kind of recklessly. So what you're saying is then also you, you do potentially run the risk that we talked about earlier, where if you are doing too many anaerobic workouts, your aerobic performance could start to suffer. And if your race is longer than, you know, I don't know, five minutes, this is going to be a problem for you. Uh, or could, could potentially be a problem for you. Yeah. It could potentially be a problem for you. Um, and, uh, yeah, and this is, and this is just a lot more stuff for future episodes. We're really going to dig into this stuff. All right. Uh, okay. And so I want to thank everyone for listening and, uh, I, I appreciate everybody's uh, feedback and response. Um, uh, you know, uh, please subscribe. We are on uh, we are on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud, and uh, the RSS feed is published on the uh, on the website under the podcast notes. Podcast notes from today are at empiricalcycling.com under podcast episodes. Um, all questions and coaching inquiries, please send to empiricalcycling at gmail.com. And um, also thank you again for the donations. If, uh, if you think the coaching that you just got was worth a couple bucks uh, and you find some improvements in yourself, um, you know, if you've got a spare dollar, we would love to have it. So head over to uh, the website again and there's a donations page and uh, we are forever grateful. And that's what keeps us doing this. Um, not, not really. <laughs> yeah, we would be doing this no matter what. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.